Section 3. Night. The night is mine, my own time, to do with as I will, as long as I am quiet. As long as I don't move, as long as I lie still. The difference between lie and lay. Lay is always passive. Even men used to say it, I'd like to get laid. Though sometimes they'd say, I'd like to lay her. All this is pure speculation, I don't really know what men used to say. They only had their words. Hello, I'm Shane, and this is The Writer's Apprentice, a podcast where we learn by reading the works of smart authors. Oh, I see. So, last time there was a night scene, I was surprised by it only being a few paragraphs long. It also kicked me into a whole discussion of why the heck were these sections laid out like this. I didn't spot that there were multiple night scenes, all of short length. One of my proposed reasons for the sections was to show the passing of time, which was sort of right. It's obvious now that they're actually showing the past. The main character is adding history to the story through the use of flashbacks, or rather, in this case, by narrating parts of her past life back to us. The J.J. Abrams TV series Lost is the first time that comes to mind where flashbacks were used, at least for me, and they have a similar role there as they do in The Handmaid's Tale. They tell us more about what the world used to be like for a specific person. Orange is the New Black by Genji Cohen did the same thing. In these series, the blasts from the past scenes were never really just to bulk out the show, at least when they weren't. Instead, they were to show why the character behaves the way that they do in the surrounding chapters or scenes. I'll be keeping an eye out in the coming chapters to see if this night scene has any implications on what happens next or if they're just to show us more about our main character. Lost's use of the technique was fantastic whilst it was fresh. For the first few series, I would watch and re-watch each episode at least twice to make sure I understood what had changed and what that change meant. Whilst I was growing up, my mum and dad didn't live together, and I lived with my dad, who had very little interest in following the TV show. My mum did watch it though, and so I'd call her during the adverts and we compare notes in three minute blocks of time. I know Kate looks like a criminal or something, but she did help the policeman. Maybe we can trust her. Or, no, sorry, isn't a murderer. He just wanted to kill the guy who messed up his life. I continued enjoying Lost much longer than most people did. I can even find ways to enjoy the ending. But those calls with my mom did eventually stop happening. It became exhausting to see unrelenting changes to characters we thought we understood. The ability to turn a hero into a villain in one scene was exciting but not after it happens for half a dozen series. It didn't help that the required mental gymnastics to place the chronology of these events became too much like hard work. And in the end, you just have to sort of go along for the ride. I know a lot of people stopped enjoying the show, but I always did. But at some point, I stopped feeling like I was a participant in it, and more just watching. There's a slight difference between how a show like Lost and how this book handled these scenes though, at least so far. In Lost, the flashback scenes often come unbidden because they're required to progress the story, but we can see here the main character is intentionally showing us these thoughts, at least to begin with. She's lying in her bed and trying to summon some happy memories. Quickly, those thoughts get away from her though, just like we can rarely stay focused while daydreaming or on the edge of sleep. Those moments where we tell ourselves stories aren't necessarily always truthful. We see here, Offred is trying to find a comfortable story to tell to herself. This might not be an honest account of what we're seeing, 
just something to take her back to a rose-tinted and happier time. Even if the flashbacks can't be trusted, they still give us an insight into what it is that does make her happy. The darkness that she struggles to escape tells us even more though. It's possible that showing her emotional state is the point here, rather than the specific story she's telling. Her thoughts are distracted, and potentially even drug-induced. Given her free license to tell her story of the past the way she wants to, and the mental state the situation clearly puts her in, how much of what we're hearing can we really trust? In many stories, you don't get to see how the world came to be. I doubt that in the following chapters we'll ever find out how Gilead and its armies came into power. The story is more about what it's like to be in this kind of situation, regardless of how it came about. Anna Rita is in a situation that's totally changed her. These glimpses of the past may be the only time you get to see the character as a real person, rather than the indoctrinated creature she's become, to whatever extent that that transformation has been. Though, bearing in mind the lack of faith that we already have in her narration, maybe we can't draw much from these historic scenes. Flashbacks aren't a tool that all authors can get behind. Colm Tolbin, the novelist and playwright, once praised Jane Austen, saying that it was impressive how she managed to give full characters and plot without having to use what he called a clumsy device like flashbacks, which too often authors these days use like safety nets. In his view, they're a way to add scenes they couldn't figure out how to include in the story. He spoke of them as a crutch to help mend shaky plots. I don't feel this way, but not long ago I was saying that maybe the story started too late, that the opening scene in the gymnasium missed the inciting action that I was expecting. Maybe, instead of flashbacks, we could have been in those scenes firsthand. There's something to be said about flashbacks simply being interesting. They break from the constant march forward of a story, giving the reader another aspect to focus on. In these scenes, we get to see the past and make our own connections to how it might lead to the present. The mother protesting for women's rights and burning pornography led to a movement of change. But how that led to an extreme situation in Gilead is interesting to think about. Whilst we're talking about the past, this might be a good time to talk about tenses. Keeping track of tenses is not something I'm good at, not at all, really. I'll often find myself having written a few paragraphs, only to notice that they're in the present tense, at odds with the rest of the story's past tense. Worse, in these moments, I often totally lose the ability to work out which tense is which, in the same way that if you write down the same word over and over again, it eventually looks alien. Tenses feel like something I never really learned but I managed to trick myself into thinking I know. So the moment I try to think about them, they swim out of focus. So it was with a bit of trepidation that I decided to look at what tense this book was written in. I was able to sigh in relief when I realised I wasn't wrong. The tale is largely written in present, typically simple tense. It's possible that this is just a tense that Outwards prefers to writing. Indeed, many of her other books are written similarly. This might be obvious, but I think it's interesting that it's possible to use language to show two periods in time. This is also one of the only ways you can tell when someone is talking in this book, as that word frequently does away with quotation marks, which is something we'll talk about in the future. Using the present tense predominantly opens the past tense to be useful to highlight that the main character is in the midst of her second life. The life after her first, which we'd find more recognisable. Two very different periods in time, delineated for us through the use of language. This isn't something that you can do if you use an active past tense to tell your story. You'd have to find other, less native ways to show that you're writing about a time before the rest of your story is set, deliberately describing older fashion, or mention how spry and youthful your characters are, in contradiction to their current older states. 
If you want to do this, you may well have to set aside entire chapters to live in part of that timeline. By using the present tense, Atwa can jump between the two eras in the same sentence, and she does exactly that multiple times. Even with that said though, the majority of the books I have on my shelves are past tense, and have never struggled for it. Another argument, usually given in favour of Atwa's choice, is that it can lead to more immediacy, as if the story is happening right now. The idea is that the action is happening at the same time you're reading the words. During some scenes, you'll speed up and your excitement will match that pace. But that same feeling can be triggered using other techniques, regardless of tense. Short, snappy sentences, verbs with power and imagery can all contribute to that. Just because you're writing a fast-paced thriller, that needn't change the tense you choose to write in. After all, if that were the case, it'd be impossible to write more docile scenes, like the night chapters where our narrator is literally settling down for bed. Ultimately, like many decisions of style in a book, it's entirely down to the author. Tenses rarely confuse the reader. Context resolves the majority of the issues that might come up. The key is to remain consistent throughout. The choice will go largely unnoticed by the reader, so long as it doesn't make itself known. To prove this point, have a think about the tense of the last book that you read. It's likely that you don't remember. I stumbled across an anecdotal observation of someone who spotted a change in trend regarding tenses during the 80s from past to present. I've no further evidence to back that up, but the thought caught my eye, as that's around the same time the tale was written. Apparently, the rise in present tense being used came in line with the popularity of screenwriting taking off. Screenplays are all in the present tense. And during the 80s, often a screenplay was more valuable than a novel. And indeed, this book was quickly picked up and turned into both movies and stage performances within a few years of release. I don't bring this up to pass any judgement against commercial decisions an author makes, but only to mention that techniques and tools a writer can pick from follow trends just like everything else. The trends presumably follow the money, so keeping up with those trends might help start or enliven a career. There are writers' magazines and regional communities of writers who watch for these trends, and they're worth paying attention to. The Hunger Games kicked off a second wave of present tense fiction, especially in young adult novels much to the annoyance of Philip Pullman. In a Guardian article on the topic, he says most of the time that present tense is used, it will later restrict the type of language use available. After the success of The Hunger Games, he notes he spotted more young authors choosing it. I want them to be able to say what happened, what might happen later, and what actually did happen. I want them to use the full range of English tenses. He goes on to say that the restrictions of the present tense leave him feeling claustrophobic. I imagine Atwood wouldn't agree with him on this but she likely wouldn't mind claustrophobia being invoked in a book about a woman trapped in her own life. Hello, and welcome to the end of the episode. Thank you very much again for sticking around and listening. If you don't want this to be the end, it doesn't have to be, you could head over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash writersapprentice, and get the next episode right now. They're always released up to a week earlier than the RSS feed, so you'll be able to find it over there, where you can... Just chuck me like a pound or so for an episode and you'll get access to the um, latest one as well. You don't have to do that. I'm just saying that's an option. If you were very eager to continue listening to me, there is probably another 10 minutes or so over on Patreon. My podcast recommendation this week has to be Law by Aaron Mankey. In Law, they talk about... Oh, that's Law, L-O-R-E, by the way. They talk about 
dark histories and tell stories relating to those. One of my favorite episodes talks about the origin of this, the phrase, the shortest straw, and how that relates to being stranded on a boat and deciding which person is going to be eaten. Again, this podcast is incredibly well written and lovely. Uh, you should absolutely go and pick it up if you aren't already listening to it. That's all from me. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week.